Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome back to Life With Style. I'm your host, Guy Vaught, and on this episode, we sit down with one of the biggest names in the sports card industry, Mr. Eric Myers. Eric was cool enough to come on the show. We talked about his Kobe collection, what's happening in the sports card industry, where the market's going, the future, the present, the past, and so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy getting to know Eric Myers. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to the show. Got you guys a super, super solid, solid guest this week. I'm super excited to get this guy on. It's happened super fast. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, so glad to have you on. I know you just flew back in from Dallas, um, doing the trade show out there, sports cards. How was that show for you? Man, I really enjoyed it. It was probably better than I expected, for sure. And we saw a lot of deals going down on, on the internet. It looked like a pretty wide open show. Um, what were your thoughts about the show overall and, and the business being done? The show is, uh, it, it definitely met my expectations, the, the camaraderie and the, the fellowship and just the people talking, just the amount of information shared back and forth was definitely something that, that I enjoyed and I was glad to be a part of, very grateful for that. That's awesome. I got to ask you, how did you get your start? Uh, maybe just a little bit of basic background of how you got in the industry and how you caught the bug. Uh, so I, of course, like most people, you know, I got into the, the cards when I was about 10, 11 years old and fell in love with them, maybe a little sooner than that. And then got out of it when, you know, when you meet girls in high school and uh, you kind of lose the itch for the cards and circled back around into it in my late 20s. I got I was an infantry and a scout, United States Army, an infantry, and I took my military bonus of 15 grand and just was just dumb enough to actually sit down on a computer one day and found eBay and had an eBay account and started buying and selling cards on eBay um, with that 15 grand. And I lost a few thousand dollars through the process. I went down to 11 grand, but gratefully I met some people that, that, uh, that kind of mentored me and guided me to become a little bit more successful, a little more successful to the point to where I was able to get my feet underneath me and become stable, grind and hustle and, and, uh, and become the person I am today. That's so awesome. Um, you've seen the industry grow. I know uh, we were kind of talking about it off air. It's always referred to as the hobby. And I know a lot of us are starting to think like, okay, this is not so much a hobby anymore as it is big business. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I don't really look at it as a hobby. And I honestly, as I reflect on my past, I don't think that I ever have since I was 12 or 13 years old looked at it as a hobby. I've kind of always looked at it as an investment portfolio. So now when I speak to people, I refer to their collection as their portfolio. That's their personal portfolio in regards to their investment acquisitions, whether they're procuring items or selling items. I don't ever look at it as just a hobby because... Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it, it, I, I do this 14, 18 hours a day. It's it's never been a hobby for me. It's Even as I work a full-time job like I do now, it's literally always been that I've been in it. It's always been a large part of my life. You know, to me, like surfing's a hobby or shooting pool is a hobby or playing softball's a hobby. Those are hobbies. This is, I mean... It's for lack of better terms, it's it's like a way of life. Yeah, how did you um, kind of get into Kobe? I know that's kind of your your thing these days. Um, I'm a huge, huge Kobe Bryant fan, so I would love to hear the story and like how that whole thing developed. Yeah, so for Kobe's, I basically I had collected some Kobe's. Historically, I was more of a, a Jordan collector, Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, the older vintage stuff as well, you know, whether it be Will Chamberlain rookies, Gail Sayers, uh, Ted Williams, um, just a litany of older, more vintage stuff, some modern. Um, I'd had the two Kobe black label Topps Coma Fractors. I'd owned both of those at once. Actually, I'm the last person to own both of them at once together. And that kind of started my passion for Kobe. 
But as time went on, as he retired, and I was able to reflect upon his career. After watching LeBron and other players play, I don't think it was until after he retired that I started to, to truly appreciate the magnitude at what he had achieved throughout his career. And then, of course, his passing. Once he passed away, it kind of cemented in my mind that that's where I wanted to put a predominant amount of my resources, my liquid capital, into not so much. And I, I've owned the really high-end Kobe rookies again, you know. Um, but I'm more emotionally attached to his autographs. That's really where I found my niche and my passion. Speaking of autographs, <clears throat> I was watching a little bit of uh, content that you were on uh, this morning before uh, we met up today, and you were kind of talking about how Kobe's autograph was super, super sharp when he was young, but over the years of signing, you said it got a little softer. Um, is that because he was signing so much stuff, you think? I think as just he evolved in the amount of autographs he signed, uh, his autograph got faster, maybe not so as fluid, as beautiful, as artistic. Plus, when he started going from the the Kobe, just the first name, and then the Kobe 8 with the number 8, and then back to just the word Kobe, then when he evolved to the full name Kobe Bryant, at that point it got, well, I wouldn't say messy, but it didn't look as fluid and beautiful. So I think that has something to do with it, you know, and as he evolves in the number of autographs he did on a daily or weekly basis um, came to a larger uh, number. I think that definitely affected it. However, through watching the evolution of players autographs, it definitely brings me to an affinity of uh, to just a, a pure uh, respect to the older people who of autographs. Ted Williams, um, again, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. Even Mickey Mantle, uh, just Roberto Clemente's autograph is absolutely beautiful as well. These older generation players, when you look at their autographs, just the artistic beauty of them. Um, it makes me uh, just proud to have owned a lot of them. Speaking of other sports, um, were you collecting a lot like baseball and other sports before you got into the Kobe stuff? Ironically, so when I got into the hobby 14 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, I didn't collect cards. I collected Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, um, Clemente, and uh, whether it be Jackie Robinson. I, I collected autographs, whether it be autograph cards, um, like autograph like cut autos or postcards or um, um, bats, balls, jerseys. You know, I've had a bunch of Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams upper deck jerseys and balls and bats and and uh, Babe Ruth, several Babe Ruth baseballs, single sign American League balls, and, and Lou Gehrig. And so I started my career in this industry with this just massive um, love for autographs. And just by sheer happenstance that through Kobe's passing, I actually circled all the way back around going through. I've done hockey, you know, Wayne Gretzky, OPG, Jim Mintz. I've had those. Uh, football, baseball, basketball, to where it happened, just by sheer happenstance, I circled all the way back around to collecting autographs again. Um, and I think as time goes on and I evolve as a human and, uh, you know, and as a person, the, the true love and uh, an affinity that I have and respect I have for the autograph cards, it, it just came to light and showed me where my passion always was. I wanted to take it back for a second. I know <clears throat> we were talking too before we hopped on um, that you grew up in Texas. I'm assuming you played a lot of sports. And I know that Texas has got incredible sports down in that state for sure. Um, what was it like growing up in Texas and, and that whole thing? It was really cool. I, I do think that the Texas environment, there's so many people there. So the competition level is extremely high. Um, I've lived in a multitude of states i would say probably six seven or eight states i've lived in throughout my life but i'm, I'm born and raised in texas um, i'm i love texas i'll always be a texan through and through to my heart you know i love the open carry concept um, but the card collecting community is extensive there and it's high dollar i mean there's some movers and shakers and some wells there especially beckett's corporate headquarters being in dallas and that's where i'm from is dallas so that really helped and um, I grew up talking to doc, you know Dr. Beckett and going to the shows all the time and going to Beckett headquarters so I always had that that love and passion for not only cards but graded cards um, 
but yeah, grow, I wouldn't have asked to grow up anywhere else in life other than Texas. Granted, I do love the beaches here in Hawaii, but um, I like the freedoms of Texas. Totally understandable. I totally get that one for sure. Got to love the barbecue too. <laughs> um, but uh, also, um, did you find when you got in the industry, was it smaller than you thought it was going to be? Because I know like you and I were talking too. I grew up in the music industry. I thought the music industry was just gigantic as a kid. But once I got into the industry itself, started meeting people, you really find out a lot of the people know the same people. Is it kind of the same concept in this industry as well? Yeah, especially as you ascend up into different tier levels and when you get up into what they would call a whale level, you know, multi-million dollar collections, the network is a lot smaller. Your circle, now granted there might be hundreds of people in the whale level now, whereas there might have been 50 or 100 before, now it's probably 500, maybe 1,000 people. But yeah, the network is a lot smaller. However, uh, the one thing I love about the card industry is a lot of it is fundamentally built on trust and respect. Yeah, more so than almost any other industry because you you do a lot of large dollar transactions with people you will never meet or maybe meet one two or three times um, that is mind-blowing you know to do a quarter a half million dollar deal with one card with somebody you have never met uh, the, the level of trust and insanity simultaneously you have to have at the same time uh, I think it transcends the concept of capitalism and transcends the, co the concept of of trust for another person. The one thing I always talk about is, is relationships, right? And I think the trust factor in this industry, it pushes past the barrier of gender, uh, of whether it be race. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Middle Eastern, it, it really, it, none of that matters in this industry. It, it's just fundamentally, corely constructed and based on your level of trust and integrity. And that's about it. And it, it's probably one of the most beautiful and fascinating um, industries I've ever seen or been involved in. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I wanted to ask you why I have you. Um, from your perspective, what do you see has really caused this current market just a blow up i mean you had guys like gary v talking about it for like the last year and a half other influencers talking about it and then all of a sudden it's just popped is it technology is it a combination of like kind of everything coming together the new generation and the old generation mixing together what are some of your thoughts on that i think it, it's it's everything honestly in my opinion it should have blown up 10 years ago i think it's behind the curve really i don't see why this industry hasn't blown up sooner and why athletes haven't embraced their own their own identity in this industry. I mean, these are cards about athletes that are worth a ton of money. I don't see why they wouldn't want to invest in something that correlates directly with themselves and their own brand and image. However, I do think that as time evolves, whether also do cryptocurrencies and stuff to that effect, as the investment portfolio has shifted slightly away from, you know, your traditional stocks and bonds and precious metals, into a non what is called non-traditional investments. Ironically, it's always been traditional for me. Uh, I think the investment platforms of the average middle-class worker, they don't know any, you, they couldn't name other than Merck or Pfizer, they couldn't name three big pharma companies or five, definitely couldn't name five, but they could name five players on probably any team in the league that they love. You know, you could pick a litany of different players and they have a great evaluation of talent. So I think the middle class person is hesitant to invest in stocks, markets and bonds, especially and they don't even especially if they don't believe in the government or the systems that constructed it. Whereas in the card industry, you really just have to believe in the player that you love and you're passionate about. And you can watch them if they pass the eye test. You think they have the next transcendent talent. And if you trust the markets and recent sales comp data, and the person you're transacting with, it's just a one-on-one -on -one basis to where you can get to believe in yourself and your valuation of talent. So, and with social media, you can network relatively fast. I think it just all works together. I wanted to ask you too, because I noticed you kind of are really solid Kobe guy. Is your recommendation or any advice on just going for one player or is it just personal preference if you want to collect baseball, collect hockey, and just do the whole 
spectrum. I mean, would you advise maybe just picking a couple players and just really focusing on those cats if you're looking for long-term investments? Or is it more just like do what you want to do kind of thing? The first thing you need to decide is, and this is paramount. I mean, this is absolutely paramount. You have to come to terms with this. Are you in it for the money or are you in it because you love it? And if you cannot differentiate or decide that, then you don't need to get in it. And period. Uh, because if you're in it for the money, then at some point you need to digest the fact that you're going to have to let everything go and that you're going to leave money on the table in order to progress into the next transaction, which can bring you more money. Through that aspect, you need to learn how to truly enjoy each item you have as you have them, knowing full well that you're going to eventually sell it. Could be a week, could be a year, could be 10 years, whatever. But the goal is to eventually flip it to make money. But if you're flipping it to make money, you need to truly learn how to embrace the moments that you own, what it is you own. That, that's paramount. And on the other end, if you're doing it as a collector, just try to break even. I mean, I don't want you to lose money, but just try to break even. If you can invest in Zion Jaw, you know, Mike Trout or John Carlos Stanton or Patrick Mahomes or Dak Prescott, you know, Emmett Smith, Barry Sanders, whatever, doesn't matter the sport, you know, Sidney Crosby, Wayne Gretzky, buy it at a decent price at a low point in the market if you can find it and then just try to hold it for a couple of years and see if you can break even and make 10 or 20 percent you know but you got to be able to differentiate the two but and and in the process you're going to learn a lot about yourself yeah I, I one advice i did take from gary v is educating myself i spent hours and i still do spend hours and hours on youtube um i know we were kind of talking about content earlier how much is content playing a role in this current market? I think the lack, the, the void, the lack of true real content will, will transcend the market going forward because real content is what will provide knowledge for the next generation of collectors and flippers in order to become successful. Let, make no qualms about it. Most people are so focused on money and being money driven that that seems to be a large part of their focus, even without them knowing it, right? The true value here is knowledge, is the knowledge of being able to provide somebody the opportunity to maybe put a little bit extra food on their table for the month, right? Or the knowledge of being able for somebody to enjoy a passion or hobby that they have. You know, if they look at it as a hobby and not as a, a portfolio asset, it's knowledge of being able to bring some form of value, whether it be happiness or money, into another human being's life. That needs to be the focal point, right? And if, and if you're focusing on the money aspect, that's where it becomes detrimental. That's my take on that. Do you find most deals that you're currently doing, are they pretty easy or they take, you know, a few months to develop kind of thing going on? Um, what do you see there with the deals that you're, you're doing currently? Both. The larger deals, it's a, it's a multi-month or multi-year cultivation of relationships in order to make a six-figure Sometimes a six-figure deal will happen in a week. Sometimes you've got to build that rapport. Because a lot of these, especially in the Kobe auto market, you have to build a rapport with somebody for a year or two or three years. So they, they trust that you're going to buy this item and you're going to truly value it. You're not buying it to flip it. You're not like you're in it because you love it, right? And you're okay to make, they're okay if you make money down the road, but they don't want to see that item to just be flipped and to kind of, lack of a better term, disrespected. Um, but a lot of it is the long-term cultivations. Now, on the lower, I say lower end. I hate to sound pretentious when I say this. Anything below ten thousand dollars or less on on that market, some of those are quick flips, man. Those are just it, it can it can happen relatively quickly. You know, people, you make the purchase, make the sale. But I find the hardest part of it all is it seems a conversation that comes up a lot more and more on a daily basis. People are afraid they're leaving money on the table. That worries me at a level to my core. It worries me to my absolute core that that seems to be the topic of conversation on most deals. They could make 2x, 10x, 20x, and they're still worried that they're leaving 5% or 10 or 30% on the table. I, I, I've seen people, I've sold people cards for tens of thousands. They've doubled their money and then worried about whether or not they left money on the table. Where I bought cards from people for $90,000, $95,000, who they bought it for six grand. They went from six to 95 
but worried that they sold it to me because they could have got it. They could have got a hundred, hundred ten, hundred fifteen from somebody else. Uh, you have to be able to digest that it isn't one person to the end user, and you just once you once your goal is maximizing profit, like truly maximizing every single daggum dollar and squeezing everything out, you're setting the foundation for the collapse of the industry and the bubble to bust. Because that, that's exactly what greed is. I mean, that's the same thing as as me wanting to squeeze the middle class out. Because that's if I sell it to somebody at a, at a price that's market or a little bit below market, but it's a, it's an item that has plenty of room to grow, and I say I give it to him for ten percent under market value, then he can then move it for five or ten percent over what he paid for it. He can put money in his pocket and enjoy the item put food on the table for his family. And as it grows and it goes up another 10, 15 or 20%, hopefully with every transaction that I do, I leave meat on the bone for the next guy. But there's not only just enough meat on the bone for the next guy to eat, but two, three, four, five people to eat. Um, I had a conversation with the other, with a guy last week and I was buying two cards that he paid, I want to say $900 a piece for or $1,100 a piece. And I bought both of them for 50 grand. Now he bought them a couple years back, but he paid, you know, he's into, he basically made 25 X on those cards and he was like man he was hesitant because he thought he could get 60 for him and i paid 50 for the two i mean jesus christ i mean you got to leave something for somebody else because if i make money then i'm going to come back and buy stuff from you but if you're always trying to cut people off from making any money when the market collapses that's you'll be a part of it and that's why it'll collapse very very good take right there i hope you guys pay attention to what he just said right there super 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 important um a subject i've kind of noticed this week just cruising on the internet and stuff has been uh a fear of kids younger kids getting totally priced out not being able to even get in the door um what is your advice to a 13 14 15 16 year old kid they're super smart these days they got smartphones they know how to use the internet like the back of their hand they've been born and raised on it um what is your advice to a kid just coming into the game Learn how to va- learn how to evaluate raw cards. I wish I had maximized that talent level. I'm really, really good at it, but I wish I'd spent more time documenting it because you can get priced out of the game so fast that your only option is to buy raw cards. But you have got to be able to assess raw cards and have enough margin in to where you submit them and then get them graded. Hopefully, they come back a, a 10, ideally, and to where you can maximize your profit. Other than that, you've got to really grind. I mean, knowing how to grind and hustle at a level that you've probably never done before is something you're going to have to embrace because random player cards and PSA 10s and Mosaic or Prism are now hitting 152, 300 bucks a piece. And if you want about two, three, four of them, you're well into the $1,000 range plus. So you've got to make sure that you're projection is right your studies is right are they in a mid-market are they in a mid-market whether it's baseball basketball or football are they a top five team where are they going to finish at the end of the year what's his body type does he look like he's going to break down uh, i'm mean, where on the wave where like at what point are you buying this player like if zion psa 10 prisms are already 800 1200 2000 dollars were you buying them at nine were you buying them at 90 and 100 bucks or 200 bucks or now that they hit two grand, or now you buying them? I mean, at that point, what kind of margin is left on there? You have to look at the margin. At this point, this is where knowledge, intellect, and hustle comes into play. And you need to really look within yourself and see if you got it. I got to ask you, too, because you just brought up grading. Is it PSA and Beckett only? Is it, you know, SGC in there? But you know, got other companies like I've been studying Mint uh, grading out of Canada. There's some other companies. Do you see other companies being able to compete with the PSAs and the Becketts? No. No, that's just, it's, it's, it, it, it won't work. And I, I applaud those companies for trying, right? And it is PSA, Beckett, SGC is a distant third. Now, I absolutely have a lot of respect for SGC. I think their, their cards are way undervalued extremely undervalued. I think SGC does a great job with customer service, turnaround time, quality of grading. I don't like the way their slabs look. I think they're a little distracting. They're not as aesthetically pleasing, if you will, as um, especially Beckett's is. However, that being said, it, it, it is what it is. And it's okay. And I think the problem is 
is people don't like the methodology in which it is, the, the, the way that these two teams or two companies have somewhat of a monopoly. Instead of trying to change the wheel, why not learn how to polish it? Why not learn how to refine it? Why not learn how to uh, maximize it being what it is? That being said, if you can buy off-brand graded cards cheaper, crack them out and flip them if you think they're at a high quality, do that. I think that's a good thing to do. Learn how to maximize that. But when it comes to Beckett and PSA, they are what they are. And unfortunately, they're raising their price. I, I could be wrong. You could have a third grading company come in and crush it and absolutely kill it. You know, I would love to see it. I'd love to see, you know, um, SGC become more accepted in the industry. Um, but, and it's really not me that decides that. Ultimately, it's Golden, Heritage, Probstein, PWCC, Mile High, SCP, Memory Lane. It's the auction houses. So when rich people, when, when new money whales come into the industry that are worth tens of millions of dollars, they're going to ask the owners of these companies, these auction houses, hey, what do I buy? Instantly, they're going to say PSA 10, BGS 10. That's what they're told to do. And so you're talking about people with no experience that are being told by these, great, by these auction houses what to do. And the whales make the biggest waves. They move the industry. And until you have auction houses that stand behind other grading card companies, it just is what it is, man. How big of a role do the auction houses play? Because I notice I've been following Heritage Sports a little bit, and there's a ton, like you said, um, PCC and all the others. Um, how big of a role are those companies playing right now? They are the role. I mean, period, bar none. I mean, the auction houses are the role. Um, PWCC, Probstein, Heritage, Golden, again, SCP. I mean, sorry, uh, yeah, SCP, Mile High, Memory Lane. I'm sure there's a couple else I left out there. The auction houses and eBay, uh, that is the industry. Without them, there's nothing. Uh, they set the comps. They set the. They let other people know what the demand is. The ironic part is what you're creating is people who are unable to think for themselves. They're just walking around following the masses. I mean, then that's what they're doing. Tops Chrome, Kobe, LeBron, even Duncan, like these Tops Paper, Tops Chrome. Those cards were trash a year ago, a couple of years ago. They were literally, nobody wanted them. But once they started having sales and people started jumping on board and it just snowballed one way or the other, cards that got left behind or RPAs, like LeBron autograph rookie cards, you're kidding me. Those cards are worth like one-third of Topps Chrome Refractor, which is retarded, but, you know, the auction houses are such the wave of the future to where the logic at some point is getting thrown out the window, which is cool because I'll buy all that stuff cheap, you know. Um, I notice uh, you travel quite a bit. Um, you go on, obviously, as many shows as you can. Um, what's your travel schedule? Is it pretty packed for this year, 2021, and heading into 2022? Um, I, I take it kind of one show at a time. I'm going to the Dallas show in March. That's my projected next show. Hopefully here in Hawaii, there's going to be some more events to where I can network and cultivate relationships better in the near future. But I just try to look at the landscape. Most of my transactions happen off the grid, so I don't necessarily have to travel. But it's always nice to see the people that watch me and follow me, whether it be on, on Instagram or Facebook. It's nice to allow them the opportunity uh, to form a person-to-person relationship with me. You know, I've had people take selfies with me or, you know, just say it's so grateful to meet me and just to just have a lot of kind words to, to, to tell me. And I, I love the opportunity to meet them, not only them, their wife, their kids, you know, and, and try to share our passions with each other. So I like to put myself out there in the public. I'm going to go off a beaten path for a second. Um, you moved to Hawaii. Um, do you get a lot of time to jump in the water and, and surf? And I we were kind of talking about that a little bit earlier. What are some of the um, things that you just love about Hawaii? I love Cocoa Head, and it's so weird because it's just a straight-up hike, right? But it's a workout. It's the serenity. It's got great views. Um, a good hike. You know, it's not too muddy. It, it, it lets me just put everything that's going on in life, just lets it just fall off, you know, to where I don't think about it anymore. It took me six months living out here before I was able to sit on the beach and just listen to the waves. There's times I'll probably talk to people 
and it looks like I'm just spacing out when I'm at the beach, and I am. I'm just watching the waves come in, man. And it's probably one of the most, next to a Kobe autograph, it's probably one of the most beautiful things in my life to watch, is to just watch the waves come in, man. I don't think, when we move out of here, when I move away from Hawaii, I think just watching the next wave hit the sand is probably the one thing I miss most. That's awesome. I got to ask you because the food out here is amazing. Do you have any favorite food spots or any places you like to eat or any of that type of stuff? No, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely no. I coming from Texas, I, I meat and potatoes type person. I honestly, it's the one major complaint I have here. I just the food. It's not that the food's bad. It's just not for me, right? And you have a whole culture of people that can't be wrong. It's just I'm that you know redneck Texas boy who came to a predominantly fish environment so it just doesn't mesh well um so i'm constantly it has taught me to appreciate and value the the dinner relationships with my family as opposed to always going out to eat and and all those other things and so in texas we go out to eat a lot or it's a lot more public eating events whereas here i've learned to enjoy the, the natural beauty of the island and the food is taken a very very distant second third or fourth at best you know um so that's the one thing I um, I miss about Texas probably more than anything is the barbecue. I hear you there. Um, speaking of which, um, do you have any other passions when you're not thinking about cards or anything else outside of dealing with the card market and all the other stuff you got going on business-wise? Um, any other stuff you're passionate about, like art or, like I said, just chilling on the beach, anything? Yeah, so, um, so I served in the military and I was a weapons engineer for four years after that. And that's a very alpha male driven industry. So after I got out of the military, I fell back into a passion of art. Um, I'm, I love to travel the world and look at whether it be um, uh, Van Gogh's or uh, Da Vinci's. Rembrandt's my favorite artist, hands down by far. Um, of, of, of course, Da Vinci is is world-renowned and one of the greatest minds to walk the earth but i think rembrandt is probably uh, any time i can travel like italy is my favorite place to travel to i love italy i can never get there enough um, whether it be the seas of galilee uh, or a, a night watch to any anything that is probably the renaissance era you know where you could say the late 1300s to the 1600s i know that kind of expands the renaissance era timeline just a bit but i have an affection for the human the human capability um, but if you look at things before electricity was invented, before cars, before all that stuff, before air conditionings, refrigerators, and you just look at the most beautiful things that humans have ever made, it's, it takes me out of the moment of life now. And you can truly kind of just embrace the beauty of humanity. But if I had one passion, it would definitely be art. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, speaking of which, uh, a lot of people are can, talking about vintage cards, how they're going to be kind of like collecting art, and they already are kind of collecting them as artwork and stuff. What is your whole take on the vintage market, where it's going, what the future looks like in that market? I think your vintage goats, you know, your birds, magics, um, Wilt Chamberlain, Scale Sayers, Jim Browns, Nolan Ryan rookies, Ted Williams, uh, Mickey Mantle's vintage regardless of sport that's way undervalued I, I, there's no way that zion and mike trout and and even patrick mahomes these players should be selling two three four x some of these insanely accomplished people you know um now jerry rice joe montana and and uh walter payton rookies are now bumping on six figures where historically they probably should have always been close to there. The fact that they were twenty or 30000 for PSA 10s for years is just a slap in the face for those the major accomplishments of those players. So I think vintage cards breaking into the six figures, 100000 plus for a lot of these um, is, is long overdue. And I'm, I'm, I think there should be a, a level of acceptability for that. And, but I understand that they're not the hot new player um, and there's the masses don't follow them. But for them to get the love that they've always should have been getting to watch it happen now, yeah, I've got no problem with that at all. That's awesome. Um, speaking of vintage players, do you personally have any vintage guys that you're just truly a super fan of? 
Yeah, I mean, outside of Babe Ruth, right? Yeah. Outside of the Bambino. I mean, because that goes without saying, right? So I just kind of leave that one as it is. To me, I mean, Babe Ruth is the first Michael Jordan, if you will, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't even – I can. he's at a level to where everybody else compares to. Um, my favorite player is, of all time is Ted Williams. That's probably a shock because I'm not from Boston. I've never been to Boston. I'm not a Red Sox fan. I've never been a Red Sox fan. But I look at – as much as people say Ted Williams is kind of rough around the edges, probably not the nicest guy. The fact of knowing that there was a player that won a triple crown, batted the last human being still to this day to bat 400, batted 406, then to go to war in combat as a pilot, right, for almost three and a half years in his prime, come back and then win another triple crown, we'll never see that again. You'll never see somebody win a triple crown, bat 400, go to war, come back and win another triple crown. If somebody were to do that now, we'd make them the logo. Of any sport, of any sport. That's like Russell Westbrook averaging a triple-double. I mean, that's like averaging a triple-double, winning the championship, or averaging a triple-double, getting the MVP, going to war for three and a half years, coming back, and then, boom, you average another triple-double. That's just insane. Just the fact that I can read that and know that that actually happened in life makes me proud to be not only an American, but just a fan of sports. Just to see somebody who's that accomplished athletically but still, without a blink of an eye, go fight for the country. Not once, but twice, because at the end of his career, he fought for the Korean War, which was, yeah, I mean, that, hands down, Ted Williams. And I think his cards, um, I've owned a bunch of eight-and-a-halves, PSA and SGC, probably six total. Um, one day I hope to own a nine, maybe a ten, but I think a ten's probably about a million plus. I don't know if I can jump, dump that kind of capital into that. Uh, but I think a Ted Williams is yeah a nine would be a great dream come true. Cool. I wanted to ask you too is uh, what is your take on um, all the fractional buying with like companies like Rally and all these other companies starting to come up where you can just hop on your phone, hop on an app, <clears throat> buy seven shares of let's say like a Ted Williams nineteen thirty eight or his rookie card or Kobe or Jordan. Um, do you see the industry? totally going that way in the future or is it going to be a little mix of both still i think it'll evolve that way as more trend as more uh, generational money and trans uh, transcendent for lack of better terms because it's going to transcend the industry uh, a transcendent amount of money comes into this industry it'll evolve that way i think eventually what it'll do is you'll see cards that are you're already almost here now you're already almost there now in 18 months three years it'll be there cards that are quarter million and less you'll see it shows being traded Anything quarter million and more, you're just gonna. The only way you can get to them is if you buy shares of them. So you'll see people walking around shows or card shops, predominantly shows though. They'll be trading and buying and selling cards that are two hundred fifty thousand or less, and simultaneously trading shares. So let's say you have a card worth a hundred grand, and then I would give you fifty or sixty thousand dollars in cash or in another card value, but also simultaneously trade you. 50,000 in shares of a Jordan rookie or shares of whether it be Mantle rookie or whatever, uh, you'll be acquiring shares and cards in exchange for cards. So it's basically going to be the card industry um, intertwined with the concept or how the stock market works. It'd be the same thing as if you go to New York Stock Exchange and they're doing buying and selling shares of stocks while simultaneously hammering out deals for cards. Um, but I don't put it past anybody in the industry to have the, the bandwidth, the cerebral intellectual fortitude in order to do that. You, see, you meet some really sharp kids, man. And I think they're able to conceptualize and process that information really quick. Yeah, speaking about the young kids, um, I know we were talking earlier too off before we got on about um, Sasha. He's an incredible kid out of Southern California. If you guys aren't watching him on YouTube, I highly suggest it. Um, Eric told me to hop back on and check out his current stuff and Eric happened to be on some of his content and that's kind of how this interview happened and Eric was cool enough to get back to me super super fast so thank you so much for that but um, kids like Sasha and there's a hundred Sashas out there maybe a thousand or a couple thousand um, what do you see these kids are they're hustling they're moving fast they're wheeling and dealing Um, what's your take on the new generation coming up the ladder document your stuff man make content Put it out there. I think it's your moral obligate. It's your moral obligation, and, and it's a moral imperative to be able to realize that what you're doing is important for not only your life but for humanity around you and your network of circles. 
to document that information and to selflessly share that information, whether it be to YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, share that information so that way others can better their own life. We always talk about the government needs to do this to help people. The government needs to do that to help people. There's no reason you can't provide a litany of information and share that freely with other people so that way they can help their own life. I don't see any reason why these young kids can't just start documenting this stuff, flipping it, make their money. I want, I want everybody to be successful. But the problem is I want everybody to be successful, right? So I don't want you to edit stuff out that, you know, just don't it, don't be greedy. You know, be relationship-minded. Document it. Leave meat on the bone for the next person. Because you're, you're not only teaching people how to make money. You need to be mentoring and teaching the next generation of people to be men and to be honorable respectful if they make a bad deal maybe overcharge somebody fix it make it right be accountable for your mistakes how to grow as an individual as a human mentally and spiritually i wanted to talk to you about that really fast because you've brought it up a couple times uh how do you build great relationships in this industry you've been in it a long time what is some of your advice on just really shaking hands getting to know people in this industry for me, it's just be yourself and be accountable for your mistakes. There's going to be times where maybe you don't do the right thing 100% of the time, and that's okay. Just own it, man. Just come back. Say you If you back out of a deal, maybe offer the guy some money. If you back out of a $10,000 deal, offer him a few hundred bucks. Be like, hey, look, I'm emotionally attached to the card. I just don't feel like selling it or something happens. Or if you commit to buying something and you don't follow through, give him some money. Be honest. Be apologetic. Come back around. Try to cultivate that relationship again and, and close out another deal with them. Um, just be genuine and let them know that you, that you really care. But don't just, you know, not to get too spiritual, but in the Bible it says, and this is just me for me as a person, it says you, you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. You don't judge it by the fruit it talks about or the fruit that it wants to bear or the fruit that it would like to have, or dreams it's chasing, you judge it by what it actually is doing. What is, it, what is it doing? What are its feet doing? What is it putting out there? Just know that. You're going to be judged by what you're doing. And you have the ability to let your name transcend in front of you. right? So make sure that's clean and it's honorable. And if it's not, own it and fix it. All right, I'm going to ask you one last question. It drives me crazy as a huge Kobe fan. Um, I know I'm going to probably ruffle a little feathers with this one, but to me, it always seems like as Jordan, Kobe somehow gets skipped over straight to LeBron, and it drives me nuts. And until Kobe passed away, then all of a sudden Kobe got all this huge love again. And I know Kobe's got a lot of love out there and a huge fan base, but it just seems like he always gets passed over do you know it's the same thing or is it different from your perspective yeah so kobe i think what happened in that is kobe and lebron overlapped so he was too close to to jordan i'm sorry kobe and jordan overlapped right so jordan was still playing so there was this massive love still for jordan when kobe came out so there wasn't a gap had there been a two decade gap or a 10-year gap and then kobe came out he would have been able to em been embraced truly to his potential, right? Like by the masses. That, when he came out, he didn't instantly transcend his team, right? Because you had Shaq. Shaq was A and Kobe was B. He was Robin. He evolved to become Batman over time, but he started at Robin. And by the time he was evolving to be Robin and becoming this transcendent player, LeBron came out in 03. So he had somebody taking limelight, rightfully so, Jordan was taking some of Kobe's limelight when Kobe was coming into the league. And as Kobe got older, LeBron was taking some of his limelight. So he just fell into a situation to where it truly wasn't allowed him to be owning a spotlight of himself. But I think that's just something we care about. I don't think he cared about that. Like I don't really think he it bothered him one bit. I think what Kobe looked at it is he's going to put forth his 100%. And he's going to do everything he can. And when it's over, it's over. Like he's going to give it his all. I don't think he cared about how the people really looked at him in regards to comparing him to LeBron or, or Jordan or whatever. And I think Kobe was 100% okay to take second fiddle 
probably throughout the entirety of his career or life until his last breath. I think he was okay to be second to Jordan. I think he, I think he saw himself as second to Jordan, and I think he truly thought that that was okay. Uh, for me personally, I think I overlooked Kobe up until he died. I think that I had to digest my perception. So what I just said, stated, is my perception of how I envisioned them. Um, I didn't truly value Kobe or Duncan for that matter. I think Duncan is highly, highly undervalued, you know, but it's, but Kobe as well. Until you watch an, an inordinate amount of highlights of Kobe, you know, watching him hit 12 threes in a game, and you see these 81 points, and Jesus, you see all these accomplishments. Then you kind of go back and you go, man, this guy kind of did a lot. I mean, he did a whole lot, you know. I mean, he even manned up and did a slam dunk contest and won it. You know, LeBron never did that. I mean, five rings, one team, you know. Um, two of them, he really was the alpha male. Um, I would say probably three. You know, the first two, no. The la- the, the end of the three-peat, yeah. And the next two, yeah. Um, and I learned from me personally, and I kind of can resemble, I uh, see how Kobe looked at it with himself on this. I, I, I don't really care. I, I love, for me, I, I PC Kobe autographs and, I don't give a damn what the masses say. Like, I mean, that's the weird part. People are on these tops, Chrome or Prism and all this stuff because that's where the money is and, and that's what other people are buying and that's where the market's going. I'm going to buy Kobe Autos probably until I cash out. Like, I don't give, and I can see how that Kobe's, the Mamba mentality kind of rolled off into me in that aspect. I don't, I don't care what anybody else is doing. This is what I'm doing. And I feel that what I'm doing is so pure that it's just a matter of time before everybody recognizes it, you know. All right. I'm going to leave it right there on that note and end it with that. Um, Eric, I always give uh, my guests a chance to shout out to anybody that's helped them up the ladder or anybody they want to personally thank or anything like that. Is there anybody you want to give a quick shout out to? Yeah. So um, 14 years ago, I got in this industry and I was blessed the opportunity to to meet a guy by the name of Ryan Hank. His Instagram is MN Miracle. Uh, we don't always agree on prices and buys and sells, and we, we bicker back and forth at times, but uh, without question, um, outside of my family, uh, when I die, uh, Ryan Hank will be the one person I think that God put in my life. Um, when I met him, I had just got out of the military. I was making $1,700 a month. Um, I was renting a room for my aunt for $300 a month. I had a $900 car. I didn't have anything. I wasn't established in any form of my life. And for whatever reason, he took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, taught me what I needed to do, um, kind of just gave me some information and my passion, and God kind of did the rest. But I went from somebody who had nothing into somebody who has a perfect credit score, has more money than I could ever dream of, um, who's got a collection that I never thought I would own, who's owned so much. I mean, here we are doing this interview on the beach in Hawaii. I can travel the world. I can do whatever I want. I, you know, you meet people, you hear stories and you um, about people. They say, oh, I met this person. They changed my life. I had never really truly understood what that one sentence meant meant until I met Ryan like 14, 15 years ago. And without a question, um, Ryan Hank changed my life. I mean, in ways that I'll never be able to truly uh, articulate. I lack the oratorical skills in order to convey that message of how much that human being who wasn't related to me, and for years I didn't even meet him. We just corresponded through phones and emails and texts, but how much that one human being not only transformed my life, but because my life was transformed, I live a life that is incessantly obsessed with helping and transforming other people's lives. So when you hear the old adage of, man, be the vine, and then you have all those grapes coming off the vine, I don't think he'll ever understand. By him helping me, I don't think he truly understands how many people that I help. And not only that, I habitually talk about you have got to help other people. So it's something that's going to, you know, just perpetually, God willing, uh, hopefully change the market and the world around it. That's it. 
All right, guys. Well, there you have it. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the show. You guys, you guys got a really good one here. And thank you for always supporting the podcast as you guys do. Thank you so much. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Well, there you have it. Episode number 48 in the books. Eric, thank you so, so very much for coming on the podcast. Dropping huge gold nuggets for everybody. Incredible information. And you just can't go wrong on this one. You're going to get some really, really, really good stuff. Make sure to follow Eric on IG at Holly Hustle. Once again, IG, Holly Hustle. Eric is an amazing cat. And go ahead and feel free to reach out to him if you want. I'm sure he'll hit you back. And he's just a really, really cool, cool dude. And I want to say also, don't ever be afraid to try to reach out to somebody if they grab your attention or you think that they can bring you value and you can bring them value. I saw Eric getting interviewed by Sasha, who's a up-and-coming cat out of Southern California, who's on the card grind. This kid is busting. And uh, he's on YouTube, has like over 100 episodes just incredible to watch. I don't have his IG handle on tap. I'm so sorry, but I hope to have Sasha on the podcast here shortly for you guys as well. He's going to bring a whole nother side of the coin and he's just crushing. So make sure to check him out as well. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast. It's grassroots. It always has been. It's you guys sharing it with friends, family, passing it around. You can always click on the link, share it with friends, text it to friends, email it to friends, and what have you, so they can hear the podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on Anchor. And I just want to thank everyone that carries the show digitally, and the support has been amazing. 2020 was 2020, and we're going to leave 2020 where it was. I just wasn't motivated last year very much, obviously, to do the podcast. But this year, we're turning the ship around. We're back on track. We're just going to go for it. And where the chips land, they're going to land. we got a bunch of guests coming on. People were confirming up. So it's looking super, super exciting. So as I always say, be kind, be respectful, be good to each other, be the best human being you can be. And, you know, open up doors, shake hands. And just be kind, because kindness at the end of the day will always get you in the door. And then it's up to you. Just be you. Always be yourself. Never, ever, ever change who you are. And that will take you far in life. My mom always, always told me that. It's the small things in life that make the big, big, big differences. So, as I always say, have a great week. Stay safe. Stay sound. And until next time... We'll talk to you soon.